0: So Matthew chapter 13, we'll begin reading at verse 24. And we're in the middle of a section where Jesus is telling parables to explain what his kingdom, what his church is going to be like. Last time it was the parable of the sower. And this time he has three more parables for us. So Matthew 13 and verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's very hard to find many people uh, in the West, at least, who've got a bad word to say about Jesus. And there are people who don't believe in him, of course. And there are some, not many, to be honest, but a few people who who, who would still hold on to the idea that he never existed. It's not a position any serious historian would hold but there are people out there in society You might have friends who think like that but it's very hard to find anyone who's got much bad to say about him. They might deny he's the son of God, they might not want to live their lives for him but at the very worst in most people's eyes he is a good guy. He taught us to love one another, he taught us to forgive our enemies, he taught us about the importance of generosity Now, if you're a Christian, you know that is not the full picture of Jesus, but you get the point. It is hard to fe- find people who have a negative view of Jesus. Even Richard Dawkins, uh, who's sort of leading the charge as the kind of new atheist, as they called, um, who's constantly, constantly attacking Christianity. Even he on his website, at least until recently, was selling T-shirts that w- with the slogan, Atheists for Jesus. Okay? If you want a T-shirt, Atheists for Jesus, go to Richard Dawkins' website. He doesn't believe he's the son of God but he acknowledges he was one of a number of good guys from history. But if it's hard to find someone with a bad word to say about Jesus, it is incredibly easy to find people with plenty of bad words to say about the church. And not just outside the church. Even those who would count themselves as Jesus' followers, even those on the inside, if you like, are typically much quicker to have just a few negative things to say about the church than they are about Christ. Now, sometimes this is very valid. The significant difference between the church and Christ, of course, is that Christ is perfect and the church isn't. Sadly, you don't have to think very hard Uh, to be able to turn your mind to some pretty horrific things that have gone on amongst people who profess to be Christians, amongst the, the visible church, as we might call it, those who say they're following Christ. Clearly, Christians have done terrible things and continue to do so. But, but even closer to home, even amongst people who would say, look, I, I've given my life to Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I, 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 I want to follow him. I believe the Bible's his word. I know I should get, get stuck into a church. Even among people who are I feel like, with us, as it were, there's still a strong temptation to just start being pro-Jesus but anti-church. Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 are largely about the church. Uh, If you look down with me uh, to the parable of the weeds uh, that we began in verse 24, Jesus begins by saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he goes on to tell the story. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, it's important we understand that he's not talking about what we would call heaven. We've just prayed, we've just sung about heaven. When we talk about heaven, we're usually meaning, essentially, the place you go when you die. The place where Christ is sat at at the right hand of the Father. Uh, But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. In Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven, for for all intents and purposes, for our um, use this morning, means the the church. Just just turn over a page uh, to Matthew 16. That's two pages, actually. Matthew 16 and verse 18. It's really important we understand this before we look at the parable. Otherwise, we're going to get in all sorts of trouble. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Peter has just understood who Jesus is. Okay, he's just cracked it. Verse 16, Simon says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You've got it. Okay. I'm not just a preacher. I'm not just another prophet. I am God's king sent to save you. And verse 18. And I tell you, says Jesus, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here of this passage. Uh, passage, partly because we'll come to it in a few weeks. But 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 the thing I want us to notice is that Jesus says he's going to build his church on Peter and what Peter has said. We'll return to that. And then in the next sentence says, "I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." He's using the two terms here more or less interchangeably. As for now, as far as you are I concerned, living where we do in history, the church is the place where you come into the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom can't go forward unless the church goes forward. You can't come into the kingdom unless you become a Christian, become part of the church. Uh, The two are inseparable. Uh, One day when Christ returns, then the kingdom will be a bigger concept. Uh, You can talk about the kingdom being the place, for example. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Whereas for now, there's no special holy place on earth, is there? So if you want to go big picture and look at the whole Bible, sure, there's more to kingdom than church. But for our purposes for now, and particularly for these parables, when Jesus is talking about the growth of the kingdom of God, or the progress of the kingdom of God, or what life in the kingdom of God will look like, think church. And really, in some ways, the, the, the parables before us this morning are both tremendously simple, simple sorry, uh, but also complex. It's often the, the way with the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? We can grasp the basics of what he's saying relatively quickly, and the more we meditate on it and think, the more questions come to our minds. And I hope this morning not to solve all the questions that might come into your mind as you look at these parables, but to set us on the right uh, path so we can reflect on it more uh, ourselves or in uh, midweek groups, wherever it might be. And basically what Jesus, just to put the kind of headlines on the table to, uh, right at the front, what Jesus is saying is that there's a tension in what you should expect from church. And he speaks to his disciples and, and prepares them for what life in the kingdom is going to look like. Life for when they begin uh, to preach and to go out to the nations. But there's going to be this constant back and forth. Uh, on the one hand, there's going to be an enemy fighting against you. So life is not going to be straightforward. But the life in the church is never going to be perfect. You will never find a pure church. So you can expect difficulties, troubles, upset, disappointment, confusion, tragedy. The church is not going to be pure, at least till I return, says Jesus. Uh, There is an enemy who is working against my kingdom, a foreign power, if you like, who is trying to conquer and steal and ruin and destroy. But lest you despair, intention with that truth that there will always be an enemy, always be a battle on, Jesus wants to reassure the disciples that ultimately his kingdom will win. He is not going to lose. Uh, this battle is not going to be like the kind of fights that you know, Sky TV or BT Sport or whatever seem to be constantly playing. I'm not, a, I'm not a boxing fan, but it seems that every month there's another kind of greatest fight ever between two just massive guys. And at least unless you're an expert, it just looks like they're two equally matched, absolute brutes of guys who are going to batter each other. And until you watch it, you don't know who's going to win. That's not what this fight is like, Jesus is going to tell us. Uh, He will win, his enemy will be conquered, and therefore Jesus' kingdom uh, will win through. So let's look just very simply at two things. Uh, The first thing we need to understand about the church is she has got an enemy, she has got an enemy. Let's look at the parable of the weeds. Uh, You'll notice, no doubt, as we read it, that that Jesus tells the parable, uh, then he tells another couple of little parables, and then he comes back to explain it. So we're looking really at verses 24 through 30, and also Jesus' explanation of the parable in verses 36 through 43. But the picture is is relatively simple, I guess. The sower goes out, we've already met the sower once already, and he he sows the seed. And a crop begins to grow. It's a picture, fairly obviously, Jesus says of him, the son of man. The sower is the son of man, verse 37. Verse 37. And this time a slight difference from the parable of the sower. The, the seed this time, in verse 38, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. So rather tightly than being the, the word of God, the gospel message that he preaches, this time Jesus is, it's as if he's saying, I'm planting people, okay, all over this field. But there's a problem. Uh, rather than the crop just growing up and uh, all these people uh, giving their lives to me, following me and everything being hunky-dory without problem, an enemy s- slips in. And the enemy, did you spot who the enemy was who comes and sows weeds in the, in the, uh, in the field? Do you notice it? Have a look down uh, to verse 39. Do you, see who the, do you know who the enemy was? It was the devil. I've got an enemy, says Jesus, and therefore you have an enemy. The devil slips in and he sows wheat. Uh, your Bible, if you've got one of the church Bibles on your lap, has got a little footnote and says, probably Darnell, a wheat-like weed. Um, I have never heard of Darnell until I'd read of that this week. No idea what it is. Maybe you do. Um, but so the commentaries tell me. The important thing to realise is that, that, that it looks like wheat. Uh, that's to say, it's pretty obvious. I'm, I'm no gardener. Uh, we've, got, we've just taken on an allotment. We haven't got a very big garden. I, we've just taken on an allotment. Even I can spot the difference between what's meant to be there and what isn't meant to be there. Okay? I can tell a carrot from a thistle. The problem with wheat and Darnell is that they look the same. Okay, so for a while it's difficult to tell, and that the darnell, the weeds, as I'm going to call them from now on, because I don't know what darnell is, uh, the weeds, uh, the weeds grow up among the people of God, and the weeds in verse thirty-eight are the sons of the evil one. That, it, frankly, Jesus, this is where Jesus is so black and white. Okay, we always want to be nuanced, don't we? In shades of grey, Jesus is pretty blunt. You're either a son of God or you're a son of the devil. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, this lovely good teacher from 2,000 years ago, you're a child of mine or you're a child of the devil. He makes no apology. He, he, as we've seen, puts a dividing line right through the centre of humanity. And the dividing line is is him. I was down this um, week in London for a few days and trying to get to a station and getting completely lost. I found myself walking past the, the Greenwich Observatory yeah, where that you know that the timeline runs through, doesn't it? Because back in the day, whoever decided these things—London, center of the earth—and all the rest of it—that that we are in Greenwich at the kind of zero line, aren't we? Okay, that is a line uh, that divides. Uh, if you go west, you are behind; you need to answer my hours. If you go east, you're ahead. But Greenwich is the line. Jesus is the line. He said, "Look, I am the dividing line of humanity. If you're not with me, you're against me. You're a child of God. You're a child of the devil." But the difficult question for us, it comes in relation to the field. Verse 38, the field is the world. Uh, One writer on this parable said that is the second most debated verse in the entire Bible. I don't don't suppose he's proved this scientifically, but but he reckons if, if you added up all the words that had been written about any Bible verses... Okay, from Genesis three to Revelation, that would have the second most written about it, verse 38. Number one, in case you're interested, is that when Jesus says, this is my body, okay, you know, at the Lord's Supper. Okay, and all the debates that have happened about from different denominations, and is it really his body? Is it a picture of his body? That's number one. Number two, he reckons, is this. Now, I, can't, I don't know if that's right. I've not read every Christian book ever written, but it's not a bad shout. The, the debate is this, or the question is this. Is Jesus saying in this parable, look, um? In the world in general, there will always be people who follow me and people who stand against me. In other words, when when he says the field is the world, is he saying that this is a story, not particularly about the church, but about how the church finds itself in the world? There will always be Christians, there will always be non-Christians out there in the world until, well, until harvest time, until Jesus returns. Or is he saying, that's what the church is going to be like? Is he saying that within the church there's always going to be those who are genuinely mine and also those who look like they are but actually it turns out aren't in other words is the church a mixed body or is it the world that the mix is a mixed body at first glance when jesus says well the field is the world we might think job done it's obviously He's obviously meaning that there's Christians in the world and non-Christians in the world. But, but actually, historically, that's not how this, this parable has been read by, by most people. That is probably the dominant view more recently. But historically, from the early church, Augustine, through to kind of Calvin, through to J.C. Ryle, the great bishop, that, that actually this has usually been understood as a story explaining the nature of the church. That it's the church, as it seems to us, what theologians call the visible church, that it's the church that is mixed, contains both those who are Jesus's and those who stand against him. I think that's right for a couple of reasons. Well, first let me say, both things are true. Okay, that's one thing to reassure you. Every now and again, you come across things in the Bible and they're not as clear as other things. And the problem is with us, not the Bible. The Bible's a good book. We're just not very good at reading it. Um, I, I want to argue that it's the church that's mixed this morning, but just to reassure you, <laughs> Both views are true anyway. Of course it's true they are going to be Christians and non-Christians until the end of the world. And we know from elsewhere, even if I've got it wrong this morning, we know from elsewhere that the church is also going to be mixed, the visible church. Think about Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where people come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy on your name? And Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you. Who are those people that come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy on your name? Well, they're not people who... Never believed in Jesus or followed another religion. They're people who called Jesus Lord, but were never genuinely His. Never really put their trust in Him. Never really asked forgiveness for their sins. There you go. That's my sort of get out of jail free card. But back to the text. Why, why? do I think it's this? Or what do most people um, historically have they thought it that it is talking about a mixed church? Well, first of all, there's the questions that the servants ask. Look at the question uh, in verse 28. Uh, the master, Jesus, says to his servants, an enemy has done this, caused this trouble. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? I.e., do, do, do you want us to go and get rid of all the weeds? Now, that is a strange question to ask if we're talking about people out there in the world. Why would... The, so the first people who were the servants in this story are the, are the, the disciples, Okay, the followers of Jesus the apostles. Why would the, the apostles have the responsibility of getting rid of people who are in the world? And what would that even mean? But perhaps more significantly, in verse 41, uh, look where the weeds are growing. Uh, when judgment comes and the Son of Man sends his angels, verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Out of his kingdom. It's a kingdom word again. Or in verse 25, where do the weeds grow? In the, in the story, it's told the first time. Uh, the weeds grow among the wheat. Uh, that is why, well, historically, traditionally, this, this has been seen as a story about the church, that amongst true believers, there will always be growing up those who don't truly Believe, who aren't really born again, to use language from elsewhere in Scripture. And that it's only at the last day when Jesus returns and judgment day comes that we'll truly see the separation between those who who are truly Christ and those who aren't. What does that mean? It means a number of things. It means church is never going to be perfect and by that I don't mean any one congregation, although that is certainly true, but the whole church worldwide. It is never going to be pure and perfect. Now, it's not that we therefore just give up and don't bother if someone, you know, has an affair in the congregation. We don't just say, well, hey, you know, that's life." No, you you deal with sin as it grows up in the congregation. In just a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to teach the disciples about what, what we call church discipline, what to do when someone unrepentantly sins. In the book of Corinthians, Paul Paul writes to them and says, I can't believe that you're letting one guy in the congregation sleep with his mother-in-law and you're all kind of fine with it. And he says, no, 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 you've got to throw him out if you won't repent. Of course, offer him grace and forgiveness, but if you won't repent, you've got to throw him out. So so this parable isn't saying, hey, just stuff all that, Just, just chill out, who cares? No. Rather, it's giving us a dose of realism. The church will always be mixed. We as human beings cannot see people's hearts. You might have had that experience already. It's a sad one, and frankly, it will come at some time, of maybe having looked up to someone in the faith, and then suddenly they're gone. Oh, I don't believe all that stuff anymore. Or they do something just horrendous. I never would have thought they would have done that. They don't repent. They stay hard-hearted. They just walk away from Christ. Jesus is warning us that, well, those sort of things will happen. The church is not perfect. And it's not perfect because it receives mixed messages. Uh, Satan is a great evangelist. Uh, the enemy is Satan, the devil. And he, from the beginning of Genesis, has been a great evangelist, a great preacher. He is, he's the master of deception and disguise. And his mission is to trash Jesus' kingdom. He doesn't want the church to flourish. He doesn't want the church to be healthy. He doesn't want people finding forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so his life's mission is to sow weeds amongst the wheat. Hell, if you like, has its own mission agency. Christians worldwide give billions of pounds a year to help send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Hell has all the resources they need uh, to send false preachers through the church to confuse and to lead people to destruction. Uh, That's why Jesus is so uh, adamant that we must listen carefully to him. I don't want to spend too much time on it today, but that little section, verses 34 and 35, uh, where Jesus turns and explains why he's speaking in parables It is very reminiscent of of what he did in the middle of the parable of the sower, where he stepped aside and said, Look, the reason I teach in parables isn't because they're nice, cute stories that help people understand. It's not just me showing I'm good at illustrations. Rather, I speak in parables because they they hide the truth unless you come to me for it. He quotes from Psalm 78 this time. And Psalm 78 is this big, long song uh, where um, the, the vast majority of it is about the fact that the people of God in the days of the Exodus wouldn't listen to God's voice despite all he'd done for them despite the fact he would rescued them from Pharaoh through the Red Sea provided manna in the desert 10 plagues to get them out of the, despite all the wonders they'd seen they still wouldn't listen they were a wicked generation like Jesus is saying to the disciples that, that that is still going on in his ministry we saw last time that only two generations in the whole bible are called evil and wicked that the exodus generation who saw so much of God's rescue uh, from Egypt, and Jesus' generation, He saw so much of Jesus' great works. His little aside in verses 34 and 35 are to remind us that we need to keep coming to him to have our minds renewed. We need to hear him teach us. It is only his preaching in which we find life. Only he can charm us away from the snares of Satan. It's a reminder too that understanding the Bible is a spiritual process uh, above all, uh, many of us uh, may have been in seminars over the years about how to understand the Bible. Uh, perhaps we've read books, good books, how to read the Bible for what it's worth and dig deeper. And we learn all these tools about how to understand scripture and they are, they are good things. But ultimately it, is, ultimately it is spiritual truth that Jesus teaches us and so it's the spirit alone who can open our eyes. Understanding the Bible is not a matter of intelligence or education, it's a matter of well, the spiritual. Jesus gives understanding by the power of his spirit. If you're leading a Bible study, if you're sat with the Bible open yourself one morning and you come to listen to a sermon in church, the most important thing you can do is not apply a load of tools to the text, or, but, but is pray and beg Christ to open your eyes to what he has to say. It will be a mixed kingdom There will sadly be mixed messages preached within it. And the reason that's so important is that there will also be mixed results for those who seem to be within the church. Uh, There will be an end, in other words. Verse 39, the harvest will come. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. One day, Christ will send his angels and it will be revealed whether we've actually trusted in Christ or not. And Jesus is not afraid to frighten us. Do you see the result for those who've not come and found forgiveness? Verse 41, uh, the angels will gather out of Christ's kingdom all the causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is speaking about hell. He uses that expression, weeping, and gnashing of teeth uh, five times, or five other times in in Matthew's Gospel. I think the idea is that that, that hell is going to be a place where people are burning with regret, not repentance. It's not that hell is full of people saying, look, I'm so sorry, Lord, forgive me now. But rather they continue to gnash their teeth in anger at the fact uh, that God is punishing them. No one speaks more more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. Uh, It is a a difficult topic. It ought to be a difficult topic if we have got any kind of heart. Hell is not a doctrine that Christians sort of embrace to be able to crow about. Look at us, we're going to heaven, everyone else is going to hell. Hell is a doctrine that's meant to break our hearts, but hell is not a doctrine we can abandon because it makes us feel uncomfortable it is very likely you've got friends, family, who haven't come to Christ for forgiveness. But the sorrow we feel about that can't make us try to be kinder than Jesus, back away from his words. He is crystal clear that there is eternal punishment for those who won't come to him. He calls it, verse 42, a fiery furnace. It's not a furnace that burns and destroys uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel he talks about some who go away to everlasting life and some to everlasting destruction. Heaven and hell are parallel. Sometimes you hear people say well you know, heaven goes on forever but hell is just sort of a bit of punishment and then you don't exist anymore. But no Jesus says that they're parallel. Hell will last as long as heaven. Eternity. I'm not sure it's literally a fire but it's not less bad than the picture. Jesus is trying to scare us George Whitfield said that the terror of hell is to burn like coals for a thousand and thousand ages, only to realise at the end of it that you're no closer to getting out than you were at the beginning. And we sing in amazing grace, don't we, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, from this verse, verse 43, we'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven, their father. But we sing in amazing grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Heaven never ends, it'll be wonderful but hell is just as eternal. If you're not yet part of Christ's kingdom, if you're not yet wheat, as it were, there's nothing you need to do. You just need to ask for his forgiveness. Ultimately, he went to the cross to to pay in order that you might not have to go to hell. Ultimately, on the cross, he went through hell. The worst thing about hell is facing God in anger. Rather than facing God in blessing, which is what heaven will be like. On the cross, that is what Christ was doing. That is how much He loved you. So you don't need to pay back the debt yourself. But Jesus is telling you how bad hell is in order that you might not end up there. They are kind words. Come, ask His forgiveness, and He will have you and welcome you into that eternal kingdom. So the church has an enemy. He was a great evangelist. The church will therefore always be mixed in terms of the people, uh, mixed in terms of the messages and tragically mixed in terms of uh, the eternal destiny. But lest we end there in despair, Jesus finishes with these two short paragraph, parables. Sorry. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, uh, verse 31 and 33. And I just want to touch on briefly as we close. Essentially, they're saying the same thing, that the, that the kingdom of God, the church, as it begins with Jesus, will look incredibly unimpressive. The mustard seed's the smallest of all the seeds, says Jesus. Smallest of all the seeds they knew. And yet it grows to be this huge tree, two, three metres tall. So too with the church. In Jesus' days, what is it? As he wanders around Galilee, what is it? Jesus plus 12 disciples. Not even all of them are going to keep going. Judas is going to betray him. A few others who hang around. It hardly looks world-changing, does it? If you were in Jesus' day, then you would think, well, the religion that's going to survive is the following Dionysus, the Greek god, following one of the philosophers. Judaism will survive, but, but not this weird little Christian sect. If you were at the cross, that's what you'd think. Well, there dies off Jesus' religion. Look at him. Naked, ashamed, humiliated, and dying. It looked weak, but actually that was the the most powerful demonstration of God's saving work that anyone has ever seen. To to the eyes of our, our heads, as it were, our natural eyes, it looked pathetic, small. But to the eyes of faith, well, it is God at his most powerful. Jesus promises that the church that starts almost invisible will grow and grow and grow. Uh, it took 1,400 years, the historians reckon, for 1% of the world to profess to be Christians. So from the time Jesus spoke this parable to about the year 1,400, 1% of people said they were Christians. In the next 360 years, that doubled to 2%. So by the mid-1700s, of 1700s, 2% of the world. Uh, another 170 years to double again. It's getting quicker. Then from about 1960 to 1990, it doubled from 4 to 8%. 1400 years to grow 1%. Then moves from 4 to 8% in 30 years. From 1960 to 2000, the church is growing 3 times faster than the world population and twice as fast as Islam. Now, this parable tells us not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. I know that, you know that. But we are seeing Jesus' words fulfilled. Often we don't see very clearly. I think that's the point of the parable of the leaven. Leaven is like yeast. Children, you put it in the flour, you don't see yeast growing bread, do you? It just works its way through and and helps the growth. Often the church grows where we're not noticing. 1958, uh, Mao's wife, Shevard Mao's wife, said, Christianity in China has been confined to the museums, it's dead and buried. 1958, 2014, 50 million Christians at least in China. Mao's wife, well, she's dead and buried. Jesus' kingdom will grow. It won't always look spectacular. Sometimes on the local level, it won't look spectacular. Uh, church planting, church plants. Okay, this is not the most beautiful building, even in Leeds, is it? Uh, let alone in the country. Uh, we are not the biggest congregation in Leeds, let alone the country. But all these things matter. Very often, I think, that different stages of Jesus' mission look like the big picture. The big picture is start small, grow big. Very often, that's what happens in, in, in missionary movements too. Start small, big. Grow. There's no promise to Christchurch Central that we will grow and grow and grow. But we are part of that bigger plant. That's one of the reasons we have to keep our eye on the global picture. If we only obsess about our little corner of our little city in our little county, sorry, our great county of uh, Yorkshire, then, then we'll, we, we may get discouraged. We're meant to think global. That's what the parable of the, the mustard seed is about. But neither are we to despair at the day of small things, He's a phrase from elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus' power is not often shown in the spectacular and the mighty. Jesus' church, you know, the bride of Christ does not always look beautiful, if we're honest. But that is how he works. And he loves her. You will find a hundred things wrong with this church, let me tell you. And probably about 99 of them will be my fault. But, but that's going to be the case wherever you go. We, we can move around. And for a while, the, the glitz and the glamour attracts us. But we'll just find problems in other churches. When we planted it in Derby in 2010, the first person who wanted to get on board from outside the little group of seven or eight of us uh, was someone emailed me. I was really excited. Oh, this is brilliant. I uh, Just emailed her back and said, look, are you at a church at the moment? And she said, oh, I'm yes, sir. I'm at this, other, this church. I won't name it. I thought, oh, OK. Uh, let me just check. So I got in touch with the minister. And he said, yep, you're welcome to her. But she's, in it, she's been at every church in Derby. Comes along, for, for two years, we'll tell you you're the best church it's ever been. Finally, a church that really preaches the gospel. Finally, a church that loves Jesus. Finally, a church that's diverse. Finally, a church where people care for one another. Fine. And then she turns out. She didn't join us. And to be honest, I'm not that disappointed. Churches are impure. Churches are small, often weak, but Christ loves the church. Christ loves his pride. Christ died in order that we might live. And our destination is glorious, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I quoted it a couple of weeks ago, but it's so good, I want to quote it again. C.S. Lewis writing about this says, look, if you could see in, in... as you look at your brother and sister Christian, if you could see what they, would be, they will become when Christ returns and transforms us, you'll be tempted to bow down and worship. They'd be that glorious. But now, they don't look so hot. Be happy with the day of small things. Don't be disillusioned by trouble in the church. Persevere uh, even when the fruit seems small. And be patient with Christ's bride. He is. He's been patient with you. So patient to wait all those years until someone explained the gospel and you became a Christian. He might be patient for another millennia, another hundred years. I don't know. But our job is to be faithful where we are. Keep, to use the parable of the sower, keep sowing the seed. Uh, Keep giving opportunities for the world to come in to that harvest. I keep growing his kingdom until heaven is full of those who shine like the sun in heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, uh, all the glory is yours, and so we trust, not in chariots, not in horses, but only in the Lord our God. Uh, We're sorry for the times that we have sought uh, ourselves uh, for power, for glory, uh, rather than being happy uh, to humbly carry out the mission you've called us to. Uh, We pray for our church, pray for other churches in Leeds, particularly some of the plants that are going on at the moment, uh, that though they be small as as mustard seeds, they would grow and many would come to faith. We pray that you'd give us the same patience with one another, patience with your bride, the church, as Christ has had with us. And we pray ultimately that the harvest would be immense. Uh, That in our city, in our county, in our country, by the power of your spirit and the word of your gospel, Uh, many tens, hundreds, thousands, millions would again find the saving love of Christ. Fill heaven, we pray, with bright, shining suns. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.